Okay, good morning again, everyone, and welcome back. For some of you that went out of town for the break, sure is much needed. And as we uh, start off this year, well, as we closed off last year, we ended our series the book of Acts, and now we're going to be beginning a new sermon series. We're going to be going through the book of Genesis, and we'll only be going through chapters 1 to 11 because we've already done chapters 12 onwards in the past, so we don't want to repeat that. But we will be doing chapters 1 to 11 because we think it's really, really important for us to understand this, this part of the Bible. Why? Because if you don't really get this, this, this part of the Bible, it's going to be really hard for you to understand the rest of it. Okay, because this is, this is the beginning. This is the prequel, so to speak, to the rest of the Bible. And really, it's, it's the prequel to all of life. What's a prequel? A prequel is a movie that comes out after the first movie, but the timeline is set before the first movie. You guys know what prequels are. I don't know why I'm explaining it to you. <laughs> so, so Tati and I, for example, we love, 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 The Lord of the Rings, right? We watched it a few times. We know what characters did what. We know what each person said. We know what happens when. But recently, we watched another series called Rings of Power. I don't know if you guys heard of it. It came out on Amazon recently. Very, very good. Very well made. Watch it if you have the time. And Rings of Power is a prequel to Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings storyline. It explains the background. It explains what happens, you know, before the Lord of the Rings started, the history, the events that happened leading up to Lord of the Rings. And what it did, after we saw it, it explained to us the why behind the what. See what I'm saying? We know the what, but now we know the why. Prequels explain the why. Now, everything that happened in Lord of the Rings makes sense. Why this person did that? Why this event happened? And Genesis 1 to 11, in a way, could function like that. It, it gives us the why to life. And this is so, so important. You know, St. Augustine, uh, an old, really smart uh, Christian theologian, Catholic theologian, however you want to categorize him, and all the great thinkers before him and after him, they all said this. It's really interesting. They all said, look, if you want to be happy, if you want happiness, you don't get it just by accomplishing more things. You don't get it just by having more things. If you want to be happy, what you need is a meaningful why to life. You need a why. And, and here's the thing. Almost all of us here, we've got the what down pretty much. I mean, not perfectly, not totally, not completely, but generally, we've all got, got the what's down. You know what you're going to do in 2023, generally. You know, you have your hopes of what's going to happen, your goals, what your plans are. You have the what's down. But here's my proposal to you. If you don't have a why, if you don't have a why, you won't be happy. You won't. You can check off and accomplish all the what's in the world. But if you don't have a meaningful why, you will never be able to shake off that nagging sense of emptiness that you felt in 2022, that you felt the year before that and the year before that. I know because I felt it too. All right? So let's, let's take a look at the why to life that the Bible here offers us in Genesis chapter 1. 
This is the word of God. You want to follow along. It's printed out in your liturgies as well. Take it from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse and from the waters that were above the expanse of the heavens. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to its own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to the kinds, their livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea, and over the birds and of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Thus says the Lord. Here are our points today. Because the God of the Bible is so unique, we can have a meaningful, wider life and a love that's beyond compare. Because the God of the Bible is so unique, we can have a meaningful, wider life and a love that's beyond compare. Let's start our first point, the uniqueness of the God of the Bible. Now, I kind of just got to get this out of the way because I know more than a few of you are probably thinking about it or asking the question that I always get when I'm talking about the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and that's always the question of um, evolution, right? A lot of people ask, can I believe in this creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and also believe in evolution? Well, just very briefly, yes and no. If you believe that Genesis 1 is true, you can still believe in microevolution. 
What is microevolution? Microevolution says that there's a kind of evolving that happens internally within a, a, a species or a genus in itself. Like, for example, a banana thousands of years ago does not look like a banana today. Okay, cross-pollinated, it evolved within its own species into what we know bananas are today. Genesis 1 has no issue with that. But what it does have an issue with is the idea of macroevolution. Or the other words, the idea that the evolution process can cross towards species or cross genuses. Like microbes, for example, becoming tadpoles, that becomes an ape, that then becomes a human being. That's a cross species. And Genesis 1, it's hard for you to marry the two together. It does have a problem with that because, as we just read, it clearly claims that God created each animal, each to its own kind, and human beings as its own kind, separately in his image, verse 26 says. In his image, a description not given to any of the animals. Okay? That's all I'll say for that there because I know we just got to clear that out. And if you want to talk about it more later, I would, I, would, I would love to. But I do need to transition to the actual point of, of the passage. And what this passage is trying to do is God here is not actually trying to give us a, a full scientific report about how the world was made. If, if that's what God was trying to do here, then Genesis 1 would be an endless book. I mean, think about all that God had to include. How do you record all that? that that's not the point here. God in this passage isn't trying to give us a full scientific report about how the world was made. God in this passage is trying to show us how he is utterly different than all of the other false gods that lived in ancient Mesopotamia back then, which is the context of when this book was written. God wanted to show us how he's different than all of the other ancient Mesopotamians, Mesopotamian gods. Okay, So back then in ancient Mesopotamia, people believed that almost everything were gods. Everything was a god. So the air, for example was a god. His name was Enlil. The water was a god. His name was Enki. The sun was a god. The moon was a god. And all these different gods kind of existed eternally together. And at times, they would kind of get into arguments and fight and, you know, gossip one another. And that's how the world's made, through their fighting and their plotting against each other. And, and God here is trying to say from this Genesis creation account, no. That's, that's the wrong prequel to life. In the beginning, verse 1 says, God. Singular. In the beginning, there's one God, and he created everything. What about the waters? The water, the water is not a powerful God. Okay? It's not this entity that, that the God of the Bible had to kind of wrestle and, and subdue. Look at what God's doing here over the waters. He's hovering over it effortlessly. He's not in it. He's not beside it. He's not trapped by it, trying to wrestle it. He was above it. What about the darkness? Ancient Mesopotamians believed that the darkness was this mysterious, strong entity that even the gods couldn't control. What did God do here to the darkness? Look at verse 5. He named it. (laughs) Now, back then, when you name something, you are declaring ownership over it. In verse 5, God called the light day, and he called the darkness, what? Night. It's mine, he says. I'm not scared of it. I own it. In fact, God names a few other things here. The heavens in verse 8, the earth and the seas in verse 10. Why? Because it's all his. 
What about the sun and the moon? See, ancient Mesopotamians believed that the sun and the moon were powerful gods. The sun god's name was Hamas, and the moon god's name was Nana. Don't know why. It's just what they named it. But Genesis 1 here says, nope, they're not gods. They're just tools in the hand of the true God. Look at verse 16. God made two great lights. It said, the larger light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. God tells these things what to do. And and this passage doesn't even use the proper Hebrew word for sun and moon. That's why you don't get the English sun and moon. It just says, big light, small light. (laughs) That's that's all they are, big light, small light. That's all God needs them for. They're not these mysterious... How about the stars? I got to talk about this one because this one is still a superstition that exists somewhat today. The stars are this entity or these demigods that somehow have power to determine our future or to tell our future. Look at the stars. They only get this brief mention at the end of verse 16. It's almost like they're an afterthought. Big light, small light on the stars. And he moves on. It's almost like an insult. Now, God's not trying to belittle his creation. God's not trying to insult his creation. He said, it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good. He says that six times in this passage. He's not insulting his creation. He's exalting himself. He's saying that everything is made by him, and everything bows down to him. He has no competitor. He has no predecessor. He has no equal. In other words, he is unique. He's the only one. That's what we sung earlier. Holy, holy, holy. That's what holy means. When we say holy today, we think of moral purity. What holy really means is a total otherness. Holy, 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 there is none beside thee. A total differentness, a category of its own. That's what he's trying to say. In this account, Genesis' creation account is not God's science report. It's his declaration of ultimate supremacy over all things. He is the why. He's the why. And all other alternatives, prequels, all other alternative whys that this world is presenting you is inaccurate. And honestly, insufficient to give you true meaning. Which leads us to our second point. This unique God, this unique prequel to all things is the reason why our lives, why our whys can have meaning behind it. Let's talk about that. So how does the existence of this God give our lives meaning and purpose? Well, first of all, by making it even possible to have meaning and purpose in the first place. What do I mean by that? Look at this passage again. It tells us who God is as he created it. First, it tells us that God is a purposeful being. Where do we see that? In verse 1. He created. In the beginning, God created. It's like the first time God's ever mentioned in the Bible, he had, you have to tell people that he's creating something. He's a purposeful God. He has intent. You can't separate him from his work of creation. He's purposeful. But not only is he purposeful, he's also intelligible. Where do we see that? In the fact that he speaks. He's using words throughout the passage. Not only is he purposeful and intelligible, but he's also moral. There's an ethic to him. Where do we see that? 
Well, his creation is declared by him six times to be what? Good. It's good. So he's a purposeful, intelligent, moral being. This tells us that life has an ethical, purposeful intent behind it, narrating it, over it. And look, if you don't believe that such a purposeful, intentional, and moral being created everything, if your prequel to life says the universe is just a collection of matter that randomly came together, then there really can't be a why to your life. There, there can't be. What do you mean, Tess? Can't, can't we just make up our own whys? Can't we just make up our own meaning to life? Well, sure, but, but let's think about that. What are we based on this atheistic prequel? We are just a collection of atoms that randomly came together. And therefore, our individual made-up meanings and values and purpose of life are just physical sensations that our chemicals in our brains produce to make our bodies feel like these things are important. You see? Because that's all we are, matter. But, but these things aren't actual meaning, purpose, and intent that exists beyond us, that is real, above us. It's something our feelings made us think are real. And, and by the way, I'm not the only one saying this. You know who said it first? The most famous atheist in history did. Nietzsche. Nietzsche said, because there's no God, then there's no such thing as good or evil or meaning to life. You want to know what the meaning of life is, he asked. He said this, Go stare into the abyss, and when you feel the hollowness stare back at you, that's when you know what the meaning of life is. It's nothing. It's like, oh my gosh, he's so dark. Well, he's not dark. He's consistent. He's consistent with his own prequel. And that's very respectable in many ways. He's consistent. He's saying, there is no why. There is no why. But the Bible here is saying that we are so much more friends than stardust. We're so much more than a collection of atoms and matter that just randomly came together. We are created by an intentional and good being that gives our life meaning and purpose Okay, what is that purpose then? It's very tempting at this point for us good Christian folk to jump in and say, our purpose is to glorify Jesus. And that is right and good, and that is true. I'm not saying that's false, but we're not at that point of the story yet. Okay, we're still in Genesis chapter 1. So what does Genesis chapter 1 say our purpose is? Well, God tells us in verse 26. Take a look at it. After he made everything, he said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. Now, next week, I'm going to talk more. I'm going to repeat this passage in my sermon next week, and I'm going to talk more about what it means to be made in God's image. But for now, I just want to focus on one aspect of what it means to be made in God's image. 
And that's the fact that by being made in God's image, we are called to be God's ruling presence here on earth. His ruling presence, or in other words, his vice region. Back then, kings would have vice regions that would rule for him in distant lands. Okay? Look at it again. We're called to have dominion, it says. Over what? Over everything. Over the fish, the birds, the earth, the animals. Okay, but, but what does that mean? Like, do I need to leave here and go buy a pet dog to have dominion over animals? Like, how, what's the application of this in my, in my day-to-day life? Well, it means that we are called to continue. Here's our purpose. Here's our meaning, Genesis 1 says. We're called to continue what God did here in Genesis chapter 1, which is what? Which is to create order out of chaos. Our purpose, based on Genesis chapter 1, if we stick with this part of the story for now, is to create order out of chaos. Notice how God here is portrayed not only as a powerful creator, but also as a skilled and organized architect. When God first made the world in verse 1, the earth was without form and void, meaning it was chaotic. Okay, so imagine in your heads this this wasteland that human beings could never survive in. Everything was just everywhere. But what did God do? He disordered, or he, he put into order this chaos, like a skilled architect. He drew a line between the land and the sea, put into order. He divided the chasm between the heavens and the earth. He put it in order. He organized between day and night. He ordered the plants, each according to its kind. The sea creatures, some are big, some swarm, organized. The land animals, too, there's three different categories. Some are called beasts that are wild. Some are livestock, it says. In other words, cattle, domesticated ones. And others creep in the ground and crawl, each to its own kind. In fact, the phrase each to its own kind appears here nine times in this passage. He's an organizer. He puts order from chaos. And then, He placed us on earth and said, have dominion. Rule it. Continue doing this to put what is chaos into order. Now, this putting chaos into order, it's it's unique from many other worldviews out there. It's, It's unique from atheism, as we talked about, because we actually have a purpose and a meaning in life. But it's also unique from other religions today. What do I mean? Because it doesn't fall into the two extremes that I want to propose other religions mainly fall, fall into, other worldviews fall into today. See, most religions either fall into retreat or conquer mode. Retreat or conquer. Some say, we got to retreat from the world. we got to get out of the world. we got to separate ourselves from the world. That's how we keep ourselves holy and safe or, or whatever. But then other worldviews say, no, 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 no. We got to what? Conquer the world. We got to take it over. We got to make this, this nation, you know, or whatever you want to call it. So there's this retreat and, and conquer. And some Christians fall into both extremes as well, by the way. But what Genesis 1 tells us here is that our goal isn't to retreat or to conquer, it's to order. To order. It's to put in order the remaining chaos that exists 
in whatever sphere of life that God's placed you in, according to his good purpose. Let me repeat that. Our purpose in life, according to Genesis chapter 1, is to put into order the remaining chaos that exists in whatever sphere of life God's placed us in, according to his definition of goodness. So, let's make that more practical to our day-to-day lives. Think about the different spheres of your life that God's placed you in. Your workplace, for example. That's That's a sphere of life, right? Is there particular practices there? Is there a culture there that's not yet ordered according to God's goodness? Now, it could be an official thing in the system itself. It could be an unofficial cultural thing that exists between how one department interacts with the other. I don't know. Whatever it is, be an agent of order to that chaos so that your, that sphere of your life as a whole would slowly more and more display God's goodness. How about the sphere of your family? Let's get more specific. How about the sphere of your marriage? Is there chaos there? By their faces, I think I just won the award of asking the most rhetorical question ever. Of course, there's chaos there. What do you do? How do you put that into order? How do you shape that sphere of your life so that you can more and more display the goodness of God? How about the sphere of your church? There's chaos in the church? Of course there is. Except for Covenant City Church. In here, it's nothing but shalom. There's chaos everywhere. Everywhere we go, you will find chaos. Why? Because the chaos, first and foremost, is in us. It's in us. That's what Genesis 1 is hinting at here. Where? In the fact that every single creature in this passage was ordered. They obeyed God's word. God said A, they did A. God told the sun and the moon to rule the day and the night. They obeyed. God told the vegetation to sprout. They obeyed. God told the water and the land to separate. They obeyed. The great beasts, the wild beasts, the great sea creatures, it says, they all obeyed except eventually for one creature. There's one creature who had the gall who had the audacity to say no. Who was it? Us. God said, don't eat this fruit. We said, I'll decide on that. And the moment this audacious creature, humans, said no to God, we rewrote our why. We rewrote our own prequel and everything became chaotic. Everything broke. There's just disorder everywhere we go because there's a disorder in here. Which leads us to our last point. This unique God doesn't just give us a unique meaning and purpose for life. 
but he also gives us a unique kind of love that's beyond compare. So how do we solve this problem then, you know, of us saying no to God, of us, the ruling representative that's meant to represent him? We disobeyed God's word. Now everything's broken. How do we fix it? Do we just spend the rest of our lives trying to, you know, appease this angry God by serving him and by sacrificing to him? No. That's actually the kind of superstition that Genesis 1 here is speaking against because that's what all the ancient Mesopotamians believed also. If they were in bad terms with one of their gods, they had to do things to appease that god. So if you want to be blessed by the sun god, for example, you've got to sacrifice that and do things to please the sun god. If you want to be blessed by the moon god, you know, by the water god, by the air god, then you've got to do all these things to please and serve and, and appease them to make sure they're not, they're not angry, make sure they're not, they're not mad. This is the trademark of superstition, by the way. Here it is. Whenever you have a God that you can somehow influence with your acts of service to him, that's always been the mark of superstition for centuries. Today, some people call it legalism. When you can influence a God by your acts of service to it, that's what superstition is. That's what it's been. But the God of the Bible here once again, proves himself to be unique. He's saying he's not like all the other superstitious gods out there. To get in good terms with this God, you can't appease him with your acts of service. Okay, then, then how do we do it? Well, it's interesting that if you fast forward a few thousand years later to the genesis of the New Testament, what we see is a repetition of this creation story. Where? How? When the same Spirit of God that we see here hover over the dead waters in Genesis 1. That's what you read, right? And because he hovered over it, there was life that was produced from within it out of nothing. In the Genesis of the New Testament, this same Spirit would come down once again. And he would hover but this time not over the dead waters. He hovered over a lifeless womb. Whose womb? Mary's. And out of it, life appeared out of lifelessness. And the author of the new creation is born. His name was Emmanuel, God with us. The word of God here acted once again, but this time not, in, not like in Genesis chapter 1 where he just said things and things appeared. The word of God became flesh itself, John chapter 1 says. To do what? To fix the mess we made. <laughs> to redeem, to put order into chaos that we have caused in his good creation. But Here's the crazy part. Unlike other gods, unlike no other god you'll find in any history of religion, this god didn't say, appease me from a throne. He said, it is finished on a cross. He's different. He's unique. There is none like him. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3 says. Or in other words, 
all of our hearts have become chaotic and disordered. And we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. The true God is different. He didn't only create His people to serve Him with fear. He created His people to show Him who He is and to show them His love. You'll find that view nowhere else. And now, friends, we have a why. Oh my, do we have a why. We have a why that's greater than any other whys ever made in history. And his name is Jesus. And when this unique why, when this unique story to life, when this unique gospel reorders, friends, the love of our hearts, rearranges the chaos to make him once again ultimate as it should have been in Genesis chapter 1. What will happen is that we'll begin to grow into who God originally created us to be. Who is that? As agents of order. As agents of order. As those who put into order whatever sphere of life God's placed us in to mirror his goodness. More and more. Just just try to picture it. How would your marriage be different if the chaos was put in order? If you're a teacher, how would your school be different? How would your workplace be different? How would your family be different? How would the city be different? How would Jakarta look different if it reflected more and more the goodness of God? If Christians here actually became agents of order, That's the image we're called to pursue here, friends, together. Because that's what the gospel does. It orders the chaos, starting with the chaos in our own hearts. Will we do that? I pray we do. Let's pray. Father, we have failed you. Not only have we, in our sin, be the first creatures to ever say no, but we also, by that, disordered and destroyed everything in which we were meant to rule over. The disorder in this world is merely a mirror of disorder in our own hearts. We've messed it up, we've broken it, we've shattered it. But yet, you looked upon us And though you found no one good, not even one, you came. New creation. You gave to us. You've made us. You've turned us into new creatures. Not by the power of our own efforts. Not by appeasing you like all the other false gods tell their servants to do. You did it by serving us. How bizarre. You did it by coming down and dying on a cross for us. Father, let this great, unique, holy love rearrange and reorder our hearts again toward you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.